Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14. We'll be getting over to Micah shortly. We're beginning in Ezekiel 14. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, you are faithful and good. We are thankful that your presence is always available. You've told us that the whole earth is full of your glory. We wake up and we see your handiwork day after day. We see the sun making its circuit every day, and it reminds us that you indeed are God. We ask that you would help us this morning, that in our time of worship in the Word, that we would truly worship you and not anything or anyone else. Draw our attention to yourself. We want to hear from you what your Word says. We want you to work in us, to draw us into a, a right consideration of yourself and of your Son through your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is an idol? What is an idol? It is whatever rules my heart. Whatever rules my heart is an idol. Paul Tripp wrote this statement, Whatever rules our hearts will exercise inescapable influence over our lives and behavior. Listen, we pride ourselves on not being idolaters, which may in fact be idolatry. I want to read just a a short account from the book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. He writes of his experience in India. He writes, I have traveled to northern India several times. Spiritually, this is one of the darkest places on earth. Idolatry permeates every aspect of individual and cultural life. Stand almost anywhere in northern India and you can see an altar to one of Hinduism's many gods. One day I stood in a temple and watched a young priest feed, bathe, and clothe an idol. I watched his colleague lie prostrate on the floor before an image of wood and gold. I was overcome by their sincerity and devotion. These innate images controlled every waking moment of the priest's young lives even though they had no ability to see, speak, or act in any way beneficial to their worshipers. I witnessed hordes of poverty-stricken pilgrims bathing in the Ganges River after long, arduous journeys so that their souls would be cleansed and their prayers answered. One day I entered a temple and watched person after person do homage to a 15-foot black stone image I thought to myself, how blind and deceived these people must be. How utterly disgusting this must be in the eyes of the true and living God. I literally ran out of the the temple, overcome with the darkness, saying to myself, I'm glad I'm not like these people. But as I looked back at the temple, I was humbled by the thought that I am like them. My idols are not the overt idols of Hindu polytheism. They are the covert idols of my heart. But either way, they are God replacements. From God's vantage point, my idols are just as disgusting as anything I had seen that day. They command my daily devotion, shape my daily routine, and guide the way way I interact with life, though they have no power whatsoever to deliver. There are times when I am just as deceived and blind as the young priests I observed. Overt idolatry has much to tell us about how covert idolatry controls our lives. You're in Ezekiel chapter 14. We're going to read there in just a moment, but it's going to set the tone for our consideration. Because in chapter 1 of the book of Micah, we noted that God was judging Israel and Judah for their idolatrous sinfulness. God was judging Israel and Judah for their idolatrous sinfulness. 
And I want to ask you, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why they were worshiping other gods? Or do you simply just get frustrated with them, disgusted by them, and judgmental of them? I find myself getting, having that response at times. Frustrated. What are you doing? What is the matter with you? Why did they worship other gods? I propose a couple of reasons. First of all, and most importantly, they were not satisfied with God. They were not satisfied with God. Secondly, related to the first, they sensed that they could be happier with what the surrounding nations were enjoying. God doesn't do enough for me. There's more out there for me. That will satisfy. God has promised His people His presence from the beginning. I'll remind you of a couple of places. Some of them will be on the screen behind me. But I want you to think through this. In Genesis 28, God reminded Jacob, I will be with you. I will be with you. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, in verse 6, God promises Israel that He would be with them. He said, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. Just a couple of verses later, to Joshua, God says this, And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And again to Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And is this not a promise to the New Testament church? In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where God's Word says, Let your conduct be without... What? Now, we remember in the book of... Ephesians or Colossians, I forget which one it is, that covetousness is defined as idolatry. Keep that in mind. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Now, our Bible says... I will never leave you nor forsake you. But in the Greek, it actually says it five times. Not, 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 not. I got it, I think. I did, five times. Five times, God says, I'm not going to leave you. Idolatry says, God, you're not enough. That's what idolatry says. God, you're not enough. I need more. I want more. And I deserve more. I deserve more than this. Look at how hard I work. Look at where I've come from. Look at what I've done. I deserve more than this. I want more than this. I need more than this. God, you're not enough. Why was God going to judge their idolatry? Simply this. Because idolatry infests and infects every area of our lives. Idolatry infests and infects every area of our lives. We're in Ezekiel 14. We're going to read the first six verses here. If I were you, I would mark this place in your Bible. And I would come back here on a regular basis because here God warns Israel of the problem of idolatry, what it causes. And I'll tell you, friends, you and I are no different. We struggle with idolatry. Maybe you won't admit it, but you're wrong. Maybe you don't think you're an idolater, but you're wrong. Ezekiel 14, beginning in verse 1, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols, where? In their hearts, and put before them that which causes them to, what? Stumble into iniquity. So what have they done? They've set up idols where? Out here? Tangible ones they can see, taste, smell, bathe, feed. No, right here. Set up idols. Right here. And these idols, 
cause us to do what? Stumble into iniquity. He goes on, should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Ouch. Ouch. That hurts. Should I bother listening to them? That's what he said. Verse 4. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore says, uh, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, and you turn your faces away from all your abominations. When we're turning away from idolatry, what is he asking us to turn to? Him. We turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. We turn away from the idols of our heart to turn and serve the living and the true God. Why? Because idols cause us to stumble into iniquity. Any of you have an idol of the heart? Believe me, friends, if you leave here thinking you don't have idols in your heart, you're deceiving yourself very deeply and very sadly. Take a look, please, over at Micah chapter 2 now. So in chapter 1 of Micah, God is telling the people of Israel through Micah, I am going to judge you, Israel. I am going to judge you, Judah, because of your idolatry. Your idolatry is the source of your problem. That's what he told them back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Essentially, uh, uh, most clearly, actually verse 5, excuse me. He said in chapter 1 and verse 5, And this is the transgression of Jacob. Uh, All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, where they had gone fully after other gods? And, And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Remember, Ahaz had set up... Uh, idols on every high hill. So right in the very place where the residence of God was to be in the temple, the people were worshiping other gods. But remember this, friends. Idols of the heart lead us to sinful practices. Idols of the heart lead us to sinful practices. So in chapter 1, he tells them, I'm judging you because of your idolatry. In chapter 2, he's telling them, the the, the idolatry looks like this. This is the result of your idolatry. He says this in verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses, and seize them. So they, they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now it's, it's very intriguing here. They're going to bed, and they're thinking, because they're powerful, they're thinking, how can I get this guy's stuff? I'm powerful, and he's not. I can get their stuff, and tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to take all of his stuff, and there's not a thing he can do about it. They oppress a man and his family, a man and his inheritance. Now, none of us would stand by. Someone comes into our house and starts taking our stuff. We wouldn't sit there and say, oh, um, could, you, could you please stop? You know, I, I'd, I'd like it if you'd stop taking my television and, and my piano I'd like to sleep on that bed tonight. Could could you not take that, please? Is is that how you go about it? For some of you, you'd dial 911. Others would take matters into your own hands. I'm I'm not not commending that alternative. But I'm just telling you, you're not going to stand idly by while someone takes your stuff. However, if they come in with machine guns, what are you going to do? I'm just going to sit here. Yes, sir. I I did not look at your face, I promise. I won't report you to the authorities because I don't, want, uh, I don't want to die today. This is the scenario that's going on in Israel and Judah. What's the reason? Because of the idolatry that had taken place. I want what you have and I have the power to take it. I'm coming, I'm coming to get it. 
And so God says, I'm going to judge you because of your actions, but your actions are a result of your idolatry. Note this also about idolatry. Idols of the heart lead to chastisement. Idols of the heart lead to chastisement. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5 now, chapter 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am, what does it say there? Devising? Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what these people are doing on their beds? On this people, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. In other words, you're not going to lift your head up from this. You're not going to get your head out from under this. You're not going to wriggle away from this. I'm devising a disaster, and there's no, there's no stopping it. Nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. So he's starting to introduce to them the fact that because of their actions, which is based upon their idolatry, chastisement is coming. Now, I'm saying using the word chastisement, chastisement is the best case scenario. Okay? Like chastisement is for someone who is God's child. It's judgment for someone who is not. Okay? So there's a, there's, a, there's a grave difference. We'll try to talk about it for a few minutes in a few minutes. So I'm using the term chastisement, kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt here a little bit. Chastisement. Micah uses the same word devise that they had used in their own thinking. In verse 4, he uses some alliteration to drive his point home. Uh, in, I'll read verse 4 in just a moment, but there are three Hebrew words he uses in verse 4. Naha, nahi, nahaya. Can you see how they're kind of similar sounding? There are three Hebrew words. It's really an expressive play on words. It gives the impression of a monotonous wail that sounds like this. I'm not going to wail, I promise. Lament with a lament of lamentation. Come on, just say it with one word, can't you? No, he's driving home a point. Lament with a lament of lamentation. He's using these three Hebrew words to really drive this point home. Look at verse 4. In that day, one shall take up a proverb against you. Now, it's interesting how this is worded. A, a, A lament with a bitter lamentation saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he has removed it from me to a turncoat he has divided our fields. Now, the reason I say it's interestingly worded is, it's saying that they're taking up a lamentation against them. And the words that they use would be like, they themselves were saying them. What is this lamentation? We are utterly destroyed. They're lamenting. They're taking a lamentation against them. They're speaking this proverbial statement about the people of Israel, the the enemy, which would be the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They're coming in and they're saying, we are utterly destroyed. He, God, has changed the inheritance of my people. How he has removed it from me to a turncoat. He has divided our fields. Why is the enemy using a lamentation with their words. Now, there's no definite answer to this. My educated guess is they're hearing the words of lamentation from the people and they're mocking them. Now, that's that's quite something. Here you are in deep, deep distress. Your heart is is rent. You're losing everything. You know, the land is everything. Being removed from your land. All your stuff. Your children are being taken from you. And these people are using your words to mock you. It's pretty, it's pretty strong. It's pretty sad. And the last statement is, to a turncoat, he has divided our fields. In other words, the enemy now owns what was supposed to be ours. And so this ends with, in verse 5, this little section, Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. When they distributed the, the lands, remember it was by lot. This portion, this people going here, this people are going here, this people's going here. There's not going to be anyone to do that. Why? Because the enemy owns your stuff. Oh, interesting. They were devising on their bed how they can get that property that doesn't belong to them. And God says, I have a, I have a, a devised plan for you. Someone's going to come and take your property. Now, I don't say this with any joy. They will be dispossessed of the land that they seized with their power, and even more will be taken from them. Not just what they dispossessed others of, but their own stuff will then be taken. Now, this is, there's a proverb, listen, there's a proverb in the Psalms about this. 
I know that's confusing, but there is. There's a proverb in the Psalms about this. In Psalm 10, 2, it says this, The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Charles Lee Feinberg wrote this, In seizing the portion of others, they lose their own. So, it's interesting symmetry. It's interesting how God uses the word devised, that while they're devising their bed and God... It's all interesting, but it's really quite sad, isn't it? We don't really like judgment talk and chastisement talk. But I do want to ask you a question before we move on to the next section, and that is this. Is there a difference between judgment and chastisement? Chastening and judgment? Let me ask you a follow-up question, just maybe for clarification. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you one of God's people? Will you ever face judgment? The answer is no. You'll never face judgment. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You'll never face judgment. You'll never face condemnation. It's removed forever. Will you ever face chastisement? Yes, you will. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about it. And it's not like, oh man, I can't bear with you people anymore. Your sin makes me angry. That's not what it is because God, the sin's been dealt with. That's not what it is. Don't misunderstand when God chastens his people. It's not because he can't tolerate sin anymore and, and he just doesn't know what to do with himself, so he has to bring out his vengeance against you just so he can feel better. That is not the picture of God's chastening. God's chastening is all about this. My child is going in the wrong direction. They're hurting themselves and they're hurting others. I know what to do to bring them back and so that they can bear forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's what it says at the end of that passage on chastening in Hebrews chapter 12. And remember, the chastening says, you are not, forgive me for this, it's not a bad word, it just has been used wrongly. You are not a bastard. You're not without a, you're not without a father. Your father loves you. And your father will not stand by and watch you take this disastrous path without coming to get you. This is a happy thing in the midst of sobriety. And God is doing the very same thing to his people here in Micah. Now some of them were not, there is people only in name. There is people only in by birth, but they're not really his people. But there are some amongst this group here in Micah chapter 2, there are some that are his people. And God will not sit idly by and let them destroy themselves and let them continue to follow the idols of their own hearts and and ultimately to, to stumble continuously into iniquity. God will not sit idly by and let that happen. He will bring forth chastisement for their good. Just like he brings forth chastisement for our good because he loves us. Idols of the heart lead us to sinful practices. Idols of the heart lead to chastisement. Idols of the heart lead to refusing to hear, refusing to hear the truth. This is the section right here. Idols of the heart lead to refusing or refusal to hear the truth. Verses 6 through 11. This is where we're at this morning. And it uses some very interesting wording. We already read the passage, so I'm just going to kind of pick through it here and try to get a sense of this. But this is where the title of the message came from. What message do you want to hear? It's very telling. It's a very telling question. What message do you want to hear? Tell me what you want to hear. If you could pick anything in the whole Bible, what do you want to hear? If you can hear a message outside of the Bible, what do you want to hear? It tells you a little bit about your, your heart. It tells you a little about the idolatry of your heart. And he makes it very clear that these people didn't want to hear the truth. That's what idolatry does. Idolatry says, eh, nah, I don't want to hear that stuff. Tell me about this instead. And so this is where Micah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, goes. He says, do not prattle. Is the word we use every day. It just says preach. Do not preach or do not prophesy. Do not prophesy, you say to those who prophesy. So they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. Now, a better reading of it is in the ESV. It makes it a lot more clear, a lot clearer like. It says this, Do not preach, thus they preach. Hmm, more irony. Don't preach at us! They preach back to you. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace 
will not overcome us. That's one way to see it. It's a good translation, except what I would do is I would, I, I would submit to you that we replace the word overtake with leave us. And what they're essentially saying, these false prophets among the people, they're preaching out and they're preaching against Micah because Micah's bringing this message and it's judgment-like and they don't like it. So they come and say, don't preach at us. If you keep preaching like this, this disgrace will never leave us. That's what they're saying. As if, listen carefully, as if the preaching is what brought the disgrace. It's not the preaching that brought the disgrace. Jesus said this, men Love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Paul said in the book of Romans, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, I died. Well, was he without sin before the law came? No. What the law did was it brought to light the sinfulness. What the preaching was doing was bringing to light the disgrace. So here they are saying, don't preach at us. If you keep preaching at us, the dis- disgrace will never leave. Yeah, I guess. I guess if, if the preaching doesn't lead you to repentance and to look to the one who wants to rescue you from your disgrace, if you'd prefer your disgrace rather than His glory, sure, you'll be right about that. But if you'd prefer His glory, why don't you listen to the preaching that God sends so that rather than being filled with this disgrace, surrounded by disgrace, and making disgrace, God's glory can be seen in your life and around your life by His grace. What a difference. This is the typical response to light when we want to, when we want to stay in the darkness. Idols of the heart become a stumbling block to the light of Christ. He moves on to verse 7, and it's really tricky. Honestly, verse 7 is like, huh? Really? I'm not sure. And the reason that it's difficult is because the first few lines are still these false preachers talking. And the last line is a transition with with Micah kind of turning things around. So here we are in verse 7. You who are named the house of Israel, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? The ESV writes it this way. It'll be on the screen behind me. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Here's what's happening. The the false prophets are criticizing the message of Micah, and they're basically saying, Man, you serve an angry God. You serve an angry God. Well, I don't know what's the matter with God's not like this. God's all love, man. God's all mercy. He's not going to ever bring judgment. He'll never bring any chastisement. Everything's good. Don't worry about a thing. Everything's okay. That's the God I preach. That's what I'm saying. That's what these guys are saying. God's not like that. These false prophets misunderstand. Listen carefully. They misunderstand the nature of God. While he seeks and will accomplish the good of his people, his goodness toward them is always in accordance with justice. His goodness is always in accordance with justice. You want a picture of it? You want a picture of it? You want to know what that looks like? Look at the cross. Look at the cross, friends. What's happening on the cross of Calvary? What is with the darkness in the heavens? What is with the cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? Justice. Justice is coming down. Why? Because Christ became sin for us. See, God is not simply going to dismiss our sin. God doesn't simply overlook or bypass our sin. He doesn't do that. Sin is judged. And it was judged on the cross. And Jesus bore that condemnation. He bore that judgment. So don't say that God is not a judging God. That's a lie. Don't say there's no justice with God. That's a lie. It's a reproach to His righteousness. It's a reproach to His holiness. It's a reproach to His very person. When we look at the cross, we see a picture of God's justice being satisfied and God's love being poured out and God's mercy reigning supreme and God's long-suffering 
overwhelming the scene because God's grace is amazing. He gives us what we could never deserve, we could never earn. The cross is a picture of judgment and, and mercy and victory and grace and love. And so the false prophets say, that's not my God. Yeah, I agree with you. You are talking about an entirely different being than the God that I know. He's perfect in every way. His judgments are strong. His judgments are firm, but his judgments are met. They're met for me in Christ. This transition takes place in the middle of verse 7. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? And I'd say that is a statement from, from Micah now, instead of the false prophets. And the answer to that is yes. God's words do work uprightly. And you know what happens when a person is yielded to God, when they are surrendered to God? God performs his word in them. Do this. Do yourself a favor. Don't misunderstand this. The Old Testament saint was not sanctified or justified by the law. Not in any way. Not one element of the law ever sanctified or justified an Old Testament saint. Look up the references in the Old Testament to the fear of the Lord and the fear of God. Look it up. Look at the results of the fear of the Lord and the fear of God. And what you'll notice is that they are parallel, parallel to our New Testament concepts of walking in the Spirit, putting on Christ. What you'll notice is God at work in an Old Testament saint. The Old Testament saint had grace, just like the New Testament saint has grace. Now it takes on different form. We know the Spirit of God dwells in the New Testament believer, and the Old Testament saint did not have that promise of an indwelling spirit. But look at all the results of the fear of God. It's grace, friends. It's grace. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? I'd say yes, they do. That's why all through Deuteronomy he says um, that from your heart I want want to give you these things for your good. For your good. God would have accomplished the demands of the law through them as they lived in surrender to him. But instead, verse 8, lately... Lately, and he's not talking about the last five minutes. Lately, my people have risen up. You see what the rest of that says? As an enemy. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by, like men returning from war, returned from war. The women of my people you cast off from their pleasant houses, from their children you have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart. For this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. An enemy of whom? An enemy of whom? And I think there are two answers to that question. First of all, they're enemies to their fellow countrymen. Now, hold your hand here, because we're going we're to come right back. But take a look at Exodus 22 for a moment. They had become an enemy of their fellow countrymen. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of what this says back in Micah 2. It says, You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men returned from war. So here you are, Israel and Judah, coming back in triumphantly like they're conquerors. They've raided other people that are their enemies and they come back into their own land and they start raiding their own people. So they grab the robe and the garment. Here you are, I'm going to take your coat and your clothes you can walk through the, the streets naked. There you got. There you have it. They trusted you because you're supposed to be a warrior for them, but instead you have become a raider. We're not talking about small deeds. We're talking about real deeds, and God is saying you've become an enemy of your own countrymen. In Exodus 22, beginning in verse 22, the Bible says this, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child if you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lenderer to them. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For this is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. 
what will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. They've become enemies to their own people. Now, to think this through a little bit, Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew chapter 25, where we're going to look at a small portion of it. It's written on the screen behind me. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or or thirsty and give you drink? And When did we see you a a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He then contrasts it later and says it in the opposite way in the negative to to another group of people. But you get the point here. When we become an enemy of God's people, guess what we do? Lately, my people have become an enemy to themselves and then to me. Why? Because we're worshiping idols. That's what the idea in this text is. The, The people of Israel are worshiping idols. And so he says you can expect to go into exile. That's what verse 10 says. Arise and depart for this is not your rest. When I gave you this land I said enter into your rest. This is not your rest what you're doing here. This is not anything like what I prescribed. This is not anything like what I promised. That's, that's the end of this. Because it is defiled it shall destroy. Yes with utter destruction. Expect to go into exile. Look at verse 11 now. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler or preacher or prophet of this people. This is what the people want to hear. Hey, tell me about celebration. Tell me about prosperity. Tell me about good things. Tell us us we're all right. Tell us no trouble will come upon us. This is the prophet the people want to hear back in Micah's day. I wonder... Isn't that what people want to hear today? Hey, everything's good. We kill our babies, no problem. Millions a year. Kill, don't, just kill them, no problem. Don't worry about it. We take advantage of small children. We rape women. Rape men. No problem. Don't worry about it. Everything's good. We're a Christian nation. God bless America. One nation. Under God. Right? We, we will, isn't, that, isn't that right? Start preaching against that. See how popular you are. People don't want to hear that. Why don't people want to hear this? Ready? Because it doesn't feed the idols of their heart. Take a look, please, at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, God's word says this. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Listen, he just covered, he just, he just covered a lot, didn't he? For of this sort are those who creep into houses and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, Exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come, it's come a long time ago, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's telling us this this is the environment in which we live, and we all Kind of, you read through that list at the beginning of chapter 3 and you think, um, I may have struggled with some of these. You ever disobey your parents? Ever unthankful? Eh? Anyone? Unthankful? <laughs> so you think, boy, this is, this is kind of bad. What do you want to hear? What do you want to hear when you're in the midst of your 
sinful, idolatrous behavior. What do you want to hear? Let me ask you a second question. If you had a disease, would you want your doctor to tell you? Or would you rather just say, hey, going to die of something? Some people are like that. You might be one of them. Going to die of something. Don't want to know. Don't tell me. It can just eat me from the insides out. If your sin will lead you to eternal judgment, would you prefer a preacher who's going to say, hey, everything's okay. Don't worry about a thing. If as a believer, the idol of your heart is ruling you to the point that God must chasten you, do you prefer that no one meddles in your affairs? Or, or maybe might you want someone to come alongside of you and say, hey, listen, things are getting out of control over here. You're not, you're not, you can't be, you can't be concentrating on God while doing this. This, this thing that's going on here is showing that you're feasting upon your own desires, your own lusts, your own affections. Wouldn't you prefer to have someone come alongside of you and say, hey, I care enough about you to tell you what you're doing is wrong and it's because your idols are causing you to stumble into iniquity? Isn't that what you'd rather hear? Well, not everyone would. What message do you want to hear? Now, we have a couple minutes left. Just don't look at your watches. Idols of the heart lead us to ignore the hope offered through Jesus. Idols of the heart lead us to ignore the hope offered through Jesus. Back in Micah chapter 2, we read this last week, right at the end of the chapter, and we're not going to get into the specifics of it, because it's going to be told and retold throughout the book of Micah. There are three oracles in the book of Micah. All of them contain this message of hope. And they all have parallel concepts in them. So we're going to tie them together as we go along. Verse 12 of Micah 2. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather, listen carefully, the, what does it say? Remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Again, I'm not going to need all the specifics, but just know the one who is the breaker is Jesus. He is the king who goes before them. He is the Lord at their head. There is hope here, friends. These people that that have devised evil on their bed and rise up to execute their evil. These ones who God says, I will judge you because what you've done is reprehensible and it is depicting the idols of your heart and bringing it to the outside. The ones who say, I don't want to hear the message. I don't want to hear the message. God says, to you I will maintain a remnant. I will not utterly cast off my people. The face, in the face of their sin, in the face of their rebellion, in the face of the idols of their heart, God is reminding them that He will bring about a restoration. He will keep for Himself a remnant. Two verses of Scripture on the, on the, on the board behind me. In Romans 11 it says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? What does it say? I like the King James. I think it says, God forbid. Meganoita. Let it never be. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I, key word, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God will never, ever be thwarted. Ever. It will never happen. He has kept a remnant according to the election of grace, is the way that the New King James Version writes it. God will not be thwarted. The Bible says this in Leviticus 26. Before any of this ever happened, when God was dishing out the the blessings and the cursings for obeying His law, listen to what He said. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate. Without them, they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned My rules and their soul abhorred My statutes. Yet, 
for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. They spurned me. I won't spurn them. Neither will I abhor them. They abhorred me. I will not abhor them. So as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. I want to remind you of an earlier question. Why did the people of God follow their idols? Why did they follow after idols? They thought there was something better. Better than that. Better than a God who spurned and abhorred that will not spurn and abhor in return. Better than that? There's something better than that? Are you serious? There isn't. Remember, remember what God said to Abraham? I am your exceedingly great reward. What is an idol again? God, you're not enough. I need, I need my wife to be such and such. God, you're not enough. I need my husband to be such and such. God, you're not enough. My kids need to be so and so and like this and they need to talk like this and act like this and dress like this and smell like this. We don't want any imperfections on these kids. I want everything to go just the way I want them, want it to. The fact is, folks, we all have idols of our hearts. Whether yours is like mine, I like peace. I like peace. I like peace in my home. It, it, it makes me batty to no end. I'm telling you, it drives me through a wall when my kids fight. Everyone's kids fight. Everyone does. It drives me insane. You want to know why? Because one of the idols of my heart is peace. I just want peace. I'll do whatever it takes to make peace. I'll get you this. I'll do, I'll do anything for peace. That's when I'm feeding on the idols of my heart. I don't know what your idol is. I like quiet, too. Loud noises drive me nuts. What's the idol of your heart? I, I know you have them. There's no doubt you have idols in your heart. The question is, are these idols worth it. Look at the treasure. Look at the treasure you have in God. Is anything comparable to that? Remember this, Jesus said, the one who loves me will make our home, will make our home in him. We'll be present with you. I'll be there. In Isaiah 43, I I really wanted to read this. In fact, I'm going to, I'm sorry that it's it's only, it's 12 o'clock now, ish. Look at Isaiah 43. In the face of our idolatry, God offers himself through Jesus Christ. There is not, there's not a God like this, friends. You could never make this God up. This is foreign. This is foreign to world religion. The, the, the gods of the religions say, you mess up, I squash you like a bug. This one just keeps coming. He just keeps coming after you. He just keeps coming after me. He is relentless. He's in pursuit of me. I would never do that. I'd have given up on me a long time ago. And I I submit to you, if you're honest with yourself, you'd have given up on you a long time ago. But God is unrelenting. Look at what he says here in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Israel, excuse me, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, what does he say? I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and, and people for your life. Fear not, for I am With you, I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and all, let the, the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me 
And understand that I am He. Before me there is no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved and have proclaimed, and there is no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Look down at verse 18. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I gave waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. God will not let anything get in the way of him and his people. Nothing. So as we close... You think, I'll think. What are the idols of your heart? And why would you want anything, any fleshly, lustful passion to replace that God? There's no one in the hearing of my voice that knows Jesus that would choose these things over him when they're recognizing the truth of it. If you're thinking of choosing a different path, a different way, it's just because you don't know this God. You don't know this Jesus who has offered his life as a sacrifice to finish God's plan, to accomplish the redemption of God's people. You don't know him. So I submit to you, if you have no interest in this God, it's not him. It's it's not his fault. You're saying you want something else. Believer, let's take the next moment and ask the Lord that we might set aside the idols of our heart to truly worship Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and I pray for anyone struggling at this moment. Help us to yield ourselves to You. Reveal in us the idols of our heart that we would see that those Idols can't speak, they can't hear, and they won't fulfill what we think they will. But you, Father, are a a hearing God, and you have spoken 